All right, so imagio Dei, what this means is this is called, this is a Latin phrase for the image of God. This is what we're talking about. When, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in a way that was different than any other uh, of his creation. And part of that is, is that it was the, he, he put upon them the image of God or this, this, this stamped image of who he is inside of humanity. Now, we need to be careful. What I'm not saying, what this is not saying, is not saying that God is in all, okay? That would be panentheism. What we are saying is that God has put into humanity a special distinction where he's placed some of who he is into humanity here, and we reflect his nature in a unique way more than what any other part of God's creation can do. While all of God's creation does reflect a God in his character and attributes in some level. We see that in, in, uh, in, in Psalm 19. We see that in Romans chapter 1. But w- humanity has a unique distinction of that. And there's ways that that's put out there. And one of the things is that the triune nature of God. Remember, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have three persons in one God in the, in the doctrine of the Trinity. So when we consider that, God is a relational God. And so when he created humanity, he created humanity to reflect that and to desire the relationship. And God related to people on a, in, a, in a personal relationship. The, the, the beautiful thing about Christianity is, is that when you, when you follow that and, the, and when you read the Bible, you see that God is actually a very personal God. He's not this distant force. He's not this entity that's out there that is very disconnected with what he created, as the deists would believe. A deist would say that God, what he did is he started the world into motion, he, he spun it on its axis, and then he kind of walks away, and he's largely uh, uh, removed and really uninterested in what happens in the world. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is that he's very personal, and he interacts. There's a couple references in, in, uh, in the book of Exodus. He refers to Moses. He's talking about Moses, and then this is what it says, thus the Lord you used to speak to Moses face to face as man speaks to his friend. And so that we have the, re- the person recording that, by the way, who was Moses, and he's saying, this is how God would interact with me. And then when he was laying the foundation, he says, it would be like how, how a man relates to his friend. Abraham was another example of this. Isaiah talks about this in chapter 4, I believe it's chapter 41. Um, where he says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, and then he qualifies, he says, Abraham, my friend. And so we have these examples of God being very personal and relating to people in a very personal way. And so this is one of the reasons why we desire those relationships so much is because we have the image of God stepped upon us. Furthermore, Jesus shows this at his incarnation. When he lived uh, during the the three-ish, three to four years while he was on on earth as a man, or well, 33 years on earth as a man, uh, three to four years of of ministry, when, when he was living on earth as a man, Jesus reflected this as well here. In chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, he calls the disciples there friends. He calls them his friends. John chapter 15, he also calls disciples friends there. And then, like we looked about last week, we saw last week of how that while Jesus was in the garden of grief, that what did he do? It was a couple weeks ago. When Jesus was in the garden of grief, what did he do? He brought his friends with him. He, he wanted the people praying with him. And so he had the 11 disciples there, but then he took three closest ones with him. He says, here, come and pray with me. 
He desired his friends with him. So why is it that friendship is so important to us, and why should it be? It's because it's part of the image of God stamped upon our life. Now, there's, 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 a, there's another reason why, and, and, and this is, you can put the next one up there, and this is that, the, the, that first problem in human history, okay? Does anyone know what was the first problem in human history? The first problem in human history was not actually sin. It was solitude. You think about that? When he looked at Adam, he says, this is not good that man should be alone. And so he created Eve. So the first problem that God solves in humanity and humanity's history is not a sin problem, it's a solitude problem. This is what Tim Keller said. He said this, there's a quote on the screen. He says, God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. He's referring right back to the garden because here Adam was in paradise. He was in the Garden of Eden, and he made it so that it wasn't complete unless there was someone else with him there. And think about that. You think, well, wait a minute here, Jeremy. I don't know if that's true. Because right now, being on a tropical island all by myself... Sounds really good. (laughs) And maybe it does. But how long would that last? How long would you find joy in that? There's a movie called Castaway, if you ever want to look at it, okay? (laughs) All right? But the point is, is that, yeah, we might want solitude for a season, and we need it at times. It's good to withdraw. It's good to have those times. So this is not a sermon against having solitude, but what it is saying is that it's going to show that if that is the steady diet of our life, there's going to be something seriously missing there. So we desire friendship and that dissatisfaction that people will have. They could even be in a great place and a beautiful place on earth, and if they're all by themselves and they don't have someone to share it with, there's a level of dissatisfaction there. Why is that? Because it's by our design to need and to want to be with other people. Vaughn Roberts, in his book, True Friendship, says this, Friendship is not an optional extra. But it is essential to our God-given humanity. Living unfriendly and friendless lives is both a rejection of God's purpose for us as his image and a dehumanizing tragedy. I think Mr. Roberts is correct. I think he's correct that this is a way we express the image of God. This is a way that we express our creative design is by having relationships with other people. Now, there's some dangers with this. There's some dangers with it in the fact that then we can, we can almost elevate a friend to a, a position that they cannot be in and they should not be in. And we'll get to that. But the reality for right now is that we should desire, we do desire friendships because it is part of how God designed us. So if you find yourself right now desiring friends and you really don't have any in your life, understand that that desire is rooted in something good. Now, the reality of why you may not have friends may be showing that something is off, or maybe not. I don't know what the reason is, but the reality is I'm just trying to affirm the fact that a desire for friendship is in line with how God has created us. So the question then comes, why then are friendships so 
difficult. If this is part of our design, if this is how God has made it so that we would desire this, and everyone has this because we're all part of the image, or all, all of us have the image of God stamped upon us, why is it that friendships can be so difficult? There's a lot of reasons we could talk about today. I'm going to limit myself to three reasons, okay? The first reason is because friendships that last take a lot of time and effort. Aristotle wrote on friendship, and he said this. He says, the desire for friendship comes quickly. Friendship does not. That's what Aristotle said. Everyone's quick to want a friend, but the actual developing, lasting friendships takes much time and much effort. And sometimes we're just not willing to do that. Sometimes all other responsibilities in life begin to crowd out this really essential part of our design and our responsibilities at work and our responsibilities at home and maybe other hobbies that take us away from people or something like that. It just brings us into the situation where all of a sudden we look around and we say, I don't have anyone else in my life. And this is a danger sometimes when parents make children their number one focus. And get, don't get me wrong, I love my kids. Um, and, and I'm just incredibly grateful for them. And they, they take a lot of my energy and focus and time. But here's what happens is a lot of times when parents, if, if their world is their children, if the children become their world, guess what? Children grow up. And then they leave the house. Most of the time. <laughs> okay. They leave the house. Then what happens? Husband and wife look at each other and say, who are you? Because the whole world has been about their children. And so we can take even good things that, and, and I'm going to argue that marriages should be based on friendship, okay? All right? And so we, we, we take even good things and we allow that to take away something that God has designed us for. So all that to say is should you prioritize parenting your children? Absolutely. For those of you who are parents, Absolutely. But you should be developing other types of relationships as well. And you're like, Jeremy, I am just so tired. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I look and I see everything that has to be done around the house. And I see everything. And I see all the responsibilities and all this stuff. And I'm just so tired. I don't have the bandwidth for someone else in my life. Let me just say, on a human level, I get that. As a pastor... I'm going to say, be really careful because that's going to push you. If you listen to that too much, that's going to push you to ignoring and uh, uh, pushing something that God has for us, for our good, away from, what we, away from our lives. And it's what we actually need. And so one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because it does take time. It does take effort. But here's the thing is rarely the, it, what is best for us is easy. Okay? Rarely, what is right and in, in, in will be most beneficial to us is the easy decision. So all that to say is, why are, we, why are friendships so difficult? Because they take a lot of time and effort. Secondly, is uh, the ambivalence of friendship. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm getting this terminology from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Four Loves. Anyone read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis? I mean, okay, okay, a few of you, okay. Uh, not one of his more well-known books. I mean, it, it, it's, it's fairly popular, but uh, he's actually, you know, obviously known for um, Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, 
Um, but one of his books, as I said, is called The Four Loves. At the end of what he traces, he traces that four different types of relationships, if you will, that are common to humanity. And he has a, a fairly lengthy chapter on friendship. And, and here's what he says. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, friendships can be a school of virtue, but also a school of vice. It's ambivalent. It makes good men better and bad men worse. I, Lewis is right. One of the reasons why uh, friendships is difficult is because if you choose the wrong person to be a friend, they can lead you in a very bad direction. They can lead you in a, in a place that actually pu- pu- uh, pushes you away from how you should be living your life. And so the Bible talks about friendship a lot and talks about the importance of friendship. And so choose your friends wisely. So this is why teenagers, all the time, you hear people telling you in your life, choose your friends wisely. Because it is so important and then here's the other thing, too, is, is and again, I, I spent a lot of years as a youth pastor, and so I had a lot of these conversations with teenagers. And so for those of the teens in the church, I tell you, is that there's a lot of times, sometimes you will enter into a friendship and you'll say, well, I'm going to try to make this person better. And that's great. That's wonderful. But be very careful with how much emphasis and how much weight you put on that friendship. Because most of the time what happens is that bad habits rub off more than good habits. So all that to say is that doesn't mean that you don't have, you're not trying to have a positive impact on someone. Just make sure that that friend that you're trying to have an impact for, uh, that that's not the person that you're, you're finding your truest and deepest friendship with. Because truest and deepest friendship, as we're going to see, has a commonality of values. And if you don't have that, then that friendship is actually going to be detrimental or has, I would say, a greater possibility to be detrimental to you. So... And again, so teenagers, unless you think I'm just picking on you, this is applicable to us adults as well. We have to be careful with this, right? And so the friendships, one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult is because it's unpredictable. You don't know where it's going to go. I mean, sometimes you may have had developed a relationship with someone, and you think, oh, man, this is going to be a great friendship. This is going to be someone, I mean, it just things are going really well. And then out of nowhere, it seems like, I mean, something changed, and you're like, what just happened here? I never knew this about this person or whatever the case may be. Maybe it's they didn't know something about you. I don't know what it is, but the friendship just takes a really awkward turn. And so that's what makes it difficult because there's this ambivalence of it could go bad, it could go good, we don't know. Friendships can be used to make, as, as, as Lewis says, good men better, but also bad men worse. So there's an ambivalence of this. This is why it's difficult. And the the last reason that I offer is is an obvious theological reason, that sin is a complicating factor here. Sin affects everything, particularly relationships. If, If we don't believe that sin has an effect on all of humanity, then we have a naive view of what sin really is. Sin is detrimental, and it affects all of us far deeper than we realize, okay? And that includes the relationships that we have, and so that makes friendships difficult. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, by insolence or by pride comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. And so he's saying, listen, it's out of pride that comes contention, as some translations translate that. People let each other down all the time. And so when someone sins against someone else in a relationship, that has a complicating factor to the relationship. And the closer to the relationship, the deeper the pain. 
and harder sometimes to get over. So sin is just a complicating factor in all of this. I mean, imagine if you knew someone and you knew that they were going to you know, speak ill of you, they were going to let you down, they were going to uh, backstab you, you knew that they were going to make promises for you and then not keep them. If you knew this, is that your first choice of a friend? No. But you know what? Someone did make that choice. And his name is Jesus. I mean, when Jesus hung on the cross, it's true that we live after that historical event. But Jesus knew, hung on the cross, fully knowing all of what we were going to do. When Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't as if he said, well, I hope they're not terribly bad. He knew your sin. He knew my sin. He knows that. And he yet, remember Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you're my friends. The ones who repeatedly let him down. You see, all the point I'm trying to make here is that sin complicates things and makes friendships difficult. But the point is it doesn't make it impossible. Okay. So sin is, 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 it has a tremendous effect on friendships. We should desire friendship. It's part of our design. There's a complicating factor to all this is because friendships are absolutely difficult. But yet, the hope in all of this is that it is possible to have good friendships. Jesus is the one that exemplifies this for us. But also we have another example, and that is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Okay? So we're there. Okay? And uh, we're now we're going to use this as an example for this final point here. Why did Paul and the Philippian church have such a close friendship? Um, look at verse 1 and, and, and uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 8, where it says this, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. I'm going to offer uh, five ways that we can see, or five reasons, if you will, uh, quickly here, of why Paul and the Philippian church had this deep friendship here. First one is they had an affection for each other, as I've just pointed out here. Now, the term here, now a lot of times when we see affection, our minds immediately go to more of a romance or, uh, or even sexual type of attraction here. That's not what this term is about. In fact, the New Testament is very clear in the terminology that it uses for different types of love and different types of relationships. What is, what is referred to here is this idea of a closeness, of a, of a heart knit with someone. So there's, there's a bond there, but it's, it has, it's not in the sexual realm at all. And so when Paul is saying to the Philippian church, he's saying, hey, I, my heart is with you. And he's sensing that their heart is with him. We see that in chapter 4 of how that they loved him and they showed him. So they had this affection towards one another. So if there's going to be friendships in our lives, 
we have to be willing to show affection towards one another. Okay, most of the guys says, I'm out. Okay, at this point. All right, you know, I, I, this is just not how we are. Okay, this doesn't mean that in order to have good friends, you have to be hugging on each other all the time. Okay, that's not what I'm saying here, guys, so, so you, stick with me. But we do have to have a heart that's knit. You know, Jonathan and David. We have to have this, this, this idea where we appreciate one another, where we respect one another, where we care about one another. When something goes wrong in someone else's life, there sh- that should do something to us because we have an affection for that person. And conversely, when something positive happens, we should rejoice in, in instantly with them. See, this is how friendships are forged and built and strengthened, is that when there's a mutuality, a sharing of affection with one another here. They had affection for each other. Uh, There's another reason, a second reason, is that they had common struggles and joys. Common struggles and joys. Look at chapter 1, verse 30. It says this, so actually in verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so there's this idea. He says, you're dealing with some of the same conflict, the same uh, uh, really persecution. He says, you're going through this. And I've gone through it as well. There's this commonality of struggles there that brings them together. Chapter 2, verse 17, we see this. It says, even as I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says, not only are there shared sufferings, but there's also shared joy. He says, I rejoice with you, you rejoice with me. This is how friendships are forged. This is how friendships are strengthened. This is why Paul and the Philippian church got along so well. Chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, listen, people are letting us down. He says, he says I'm telling you this with tears here. There's this common struggle that they had this common joy that they enjoyed with one another. You see, this is how friendships are built, is that you have to enter into someone else's joy and their struggle as well. But you see, the problem is, is that a lot of times we're so wrapped up in our own problems that we don't have the bandwidth, or that's what we tell ourselves, to embrace someone else in their struggle and in their difficulty. And if we find it consequently even sometimes the hard to re- rejoice with other people because we're too focused on ourselves. It's hard to rejoice with someone else when they've gotten what we want. How do we do that? Well, it's because we recognize that at the root of all of humanity is a God who cares about all things and is working all things according to his eternal purpose and glory. And so if what I didn't get, that's Okay. Because God is not off the throne when I didn't get what I wanted to get. And so I can have joy when someone else has it. And I can actually, you know, be grateful and build that friendship with someone when they've gotten something that I have not received. You see, friendships, they are, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. And sin complicates these things. But yet, Jesus is one. He's one who shows us that it is possible when our identity is in him. And then furthermore, here we have this example of Philip, uh, the Philippian church, and the Apostle Paul. 
I like what J.C. Ryle, who is a Scottish theologian of the, uh, the you know, late 19th century, he said this, um, the world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. And then he says this, the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. I like that. You know, when you have someone that will bear the burden with you, it doesn't take away the problem, but it halves it sometimes. It feels that way. And then when we can rejoice with someone, it's like the joy is even greater. Think about it. When you find out really good news, maybe you've been praying about something for years, and there's something, what is the first thing you want to do? You want, you want to, like, tell somebody. You want to rejoice with someone. You want them to enter into that with you because that's how we're designed. But if we've lived our lives and we've orchestrated our lives or we've allowed responsibilities or we've allowed personality or something like that to keep people away, you're bearing your problems on a a level that you don't have to bear and you're not able to share those joys that you are meant to share with other people. But when God answers a prayer request, we should be sharing that with people because it doubles the joy, like Ryle says. So this is why friendship is so important. This is why Paul and the Philippian church got along so well is because that they were sharing struggles with each other, but yet they were sharing joy with each other. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So how did they have this relationship? How did they have this friendship? They had affection for each other. They had common struggles and joys. Thirdly, they had shared values. I mentioned this before. Look at chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2, um, and we see this. Um, in chapter, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, So if there's any encouragement of Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation, by the way, that word participation comes up a lot in this letter here, Um, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, verse 2, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Being like-minded is crucial to friendships. I mean, think about it. This is often how friendships are forged the beginnings of it at least, is when there's this commonality there. And we say, okay, wait a minute here. You know, wait a minute, wait. You, you just, I mean, maybe you have a hobby and you find out someone else has the same hobby. There's automatically like a, wait a minute here. Oh, you, he's, I mean, you, you all know that, you know, I cheer for a team that's not from the state, okay? And then when I see someone else that has, you know, a hat on or something like that, I'm like, there's another one of us. All right. Yeah, that's good. I remember when I was in Israel, 2005. I'm walking and, uh, and, there, and I see a guy in Israel with a, with a Michigan hat on. I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, and he, and he, he obviously lived there. He goes, well, I'm originally from Southfield, you know, and I mean, now I live here. I was like, what? I mean, there's this commonality there, right? Shared values. This is the reason why Lions fans are so hopeful right now. Is because there's more of us growing, it seems like, you know, for the first time ever. There's commonality there. But the problem is that breaks down. Maybe we disagree on our sports team. Maybe one of us wants to give up on it, the other one doesn't. 
Maybe we find out that we're agreed in sports, but boy, that is the only area in which we're aligned in. That's really hard to have a friendship based only on a common sports team or a hobby or even a life experience. Sometimes people have walked through a particular life experience and they find someone else who's walked through that same path. And automatically there's a bond there because they have the shared value. There's a shared experience, rather. But then they find out, well, that's, they handle that in a completely different way. You can't, friendships lessen at that point. So it's not just a shared experience. It has to be shared valued with the experience. So how do we know that they had the shared values here? It says, being by the same mind here that we just read in Philippians chapter 2, he says, okay, so is that just that they, 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 they like the same restaurant? Is that just that they like the same foods? They like the same books to read? They, had, they like the same, what is it that means to be the same mind? They just thought alike. Actually, it goes deeper to that because if you continue reading in chapter 2 and verse 5, he, just, he talks about this mind again. Have this mind, okay, what is this mind? In, uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now what Paul has done here is he says, listen, you and I of Philippians, the reason why we're getting along is because we have the same mind. But this text then clarifies that he's not talking about sports teams. He's not talking about hobbies. He's not even talking primarily about shared experiences, even though that's important. And what he's talking about is the same values in Christ the same essence, the same theology, the same idea of, okay, who Christ is and what is it that he's come to do for us. That, my friend, if you share that with other people and that's the basis of your friendship, that friendship can withstand almost anything because of what it does to us. We're saying because it, it shapes our entire worldview. It shapes our entire uh, 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 um, ecosystem of who we are because we have the mind of Christ. And so the reason why they got along so well is because they had these shared mind values. And the, the shared values of they had the same mind, and the controlling factor of that was the mind of Christ. And so if you're going to develop friendships that are going to last and are going to be the most beneficial to you, they have to have the same uh, values. And I submit that is on Jesus Christ, having the mind of Christ. Let me move on. Number four of why they had this uh, uh, very helpful friendship is that they enjoyed what I put mutuality. Look at chapter four. So they enjoyed mutuality. Now, why did I use that word? Look at chapter four. It says this. It says in verse 14, and yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, there's that word again, partnership with me, how? In giving and receiving, except you only. He says, of all the churches, the ones that entered into partnership with me were, it was you. And it, this partnership was displayed by a mutuality of giving and receiving. Now, that's important because if friendship is going to be something that you're going to have good friends in your life, you have to have both. You have to have giving and receiving. And friendships that are one-sided rarely last, or at the very least, they remain at a superficial level. In a friendship, there has to be give and take. There has to be giving and receiving. But the problem is, is that sometimes we're not willing to do that. And that's why friendships are so difficult, and that, because it takes effort, and it takes, it takes work, it takes time. And this is the reason why sometimes we feel alone, is because maybe we are willing to help, but we are really bad at asking for help. 
I'll be, I, I struggle with that. I do. I'll be the first to admit that this is something that I, I have to grow in. Is because I enjoy helping people, but I never ever want to be a burden to anybody else. Okay, so it's hard for me to say, hey, can you do this? Okay. And it's something that as I studied for this message, I thought, you know, I'm not being the friend that I probably should be. So there's a sign-up sheet of all the ways you can help me. No, no I'm teasing. <laughs> okay, no, that's not the answer to this. Okay, but the reason, some of you identify with me in this. You love helping and you're good at it, but it's really hard for you to ask for help. Let me just say, I, he- I hear it and, and I'm right there with you and let's grow together in this, okay? Some of you have the opposite problem. You have no problems asking for help and wanting people to help you, which is important in a friendship, but you don't want to help or you don't want to inconvenience yourself for someone else. You're frustrated because no one's helping you during this situation, but when other people go into situations, you're not helping them. You see, this is this mutuality that there's a reason why Paul had such a good friendship with this Philippian church is because it was giving and receiving. It was both. And trying to find that balance is hard sometimes. It takes the spirits leading us in that. So there's mutuality there, something for us to grow in. Lastly, what is the last reason that I offer for it? And we could, there's plenty of other things that we could talk about here, is that there was a willingness to risk the friendship for the other's good. Chapter 4 again, verse 2. I entreat Yodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is Paul doing there? We don't know all what was happening, but apparently in this church that Paul loved, whom he considered his friends, there was two individuals who were having a feud don't know what it was over. Don't know what it was about. Every time I read that, I think, man, that is not how I'd want to go down in the pages of history. You know, of like, well, I couldn't get along with somebody. But the reality is we all have that. There's times in our lives where if we took a snapshot of a moment in any one of a, a specific moment in any one of our lives, it would be, hey, get along with this person. We all have this. Now, what Paul was doing here is he was writing, he was saying, this is crucial to the unity of the church. And he says, all the rest of you help them with this. Work this out. Now, this letter was not sent to an individual. This letter was to be read by the church. Now, can you imagine if I say, hey, we got a new letter from Paul. I'm going to read it to you all today. And so, uh, you know, I read this letter. So I say, okay, and here are all these things and talk about how good you are. And I'm just like, you know, all right. Blake and Nate, you got to get along, okay? All right? The rest of you, help these guys work it out. And by the way, their names are written in the book of life. But help them out. You know, all of a sudden, people are just like, oh, man, you know, man. And all of a sudden, it'd be easy for Blake and Nate to get a little irritated, a little get upset. Like, why are you calling me out? Why are you calling us out? 
I mean, clearly it's Blake's fault here. But why are we, why are we, calling, why are we calling him out? Why are we calling, you know, why, why are we doing this, right? You'd be, it's risky for Paul to do this. But it was for their good. Now, again, this is just an illustration. I'm not saying that for your friendships, what you do is you say, Hey, you know, hey, Jeremy, you know, we, we just have this announcement to make that, you know, so-and-so needs to get their heart right with God and it's for their good, you know, that they need to stop sinning, so please announce that to the church. You know, that's not the point here. What he is saying is he's saying this was crucial. Obviously, it was well-known in the church. And he's saying you all have to work together on this and you have to help them with this. But that was risky. They could have responded to Paul by saying, hey, we'd rather you not name names you know, probably other churches are going to read this. And so would you, would you tone that down? He was willing to risk that before they're good. There's a moment in almost every friendship and any meaningful friendship where that is tested. Where you have to tell someone something. You have to ask them a question. And you know that it could go sideways really fast. The most healthy relationships and friendships are the ones that are saying, I care so much about this person's good that I'm willing to risk it. And again, you're bathing that with prayer. You're not doing it out of irritation. It's the motivation of the good of the other person. And you say, I, I just, I, maybe I don't know all the facts here, but here's what I do know, and here's my concern, and here's how I'm praying for you, and he, is there a way I can help? You see, this is what Paul and the Philippian church did here. Paul to the Philippian church is that there was a willingness to risk for the other person's good. Proverbs 29, verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. If he only tells good things and flatters the person, Proverbs says that's just spreading a net for him. It's a trap because that's not helping the person at all. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. He says, you know, the wounds of a friend, those are faithful. And you say, listen, you know, here's the thing is, is a, I really need you to, 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 to consider this. Or, or this is where I think you might be thinking wrong on this. And, and here's the reason why I thought about this, because I was reading my devotions, and here's this text of Scripture. And so, you know, I'd love to discuss that with you. Maybe I don't know all the information here. Maybe I don't know all the details, but I'd love to have this conversation with you. Those things, those are the friendships that last. So as we, as we start to bring this to a close, how do we apply this? Well, we can apply this in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I told you before that marriage is one of those very important things where we, marriage should be uh, based on a friendship. Um, and so if, if, you know, if you're, if you're single and, and, and you're praying about a spouse, my advice is, is look for someone who you could be friends with, okay? And I'm not saying that the relationship has to start as friends, but I'm just saying that just, just, just someone who, who could be a, a, a friend during those times of, of, diff, of life's difficulties. So, so in a marriage relationship, so for those of you who are married in the room, I want you just to, to, to go through this and say, okay, do you have a good friendship with your spouse? Is there affection? In the marriage context, that could be sexual, but in this context, we're not talking about sexual. We're talking about just this, this, this affection, this respect, this admiration for each other. Do you have that? Do you have common struggles and joys, or do you not open up to your spouse? And do you just kind of keep all your struggles in, 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 uh, you know, private, and you don't really rejoice with one another? 
Do you have shared values built on the mind of Christ? Is there mutuality of giving and receiving, meeting the needs of each other in day-to-day life? Is there a willingness to risk peace for the sake of the betterment of the other person? I am not going there. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, there's a, you just know that, you know, the spouse is, is not, oh man, they're, they're, this, is, this is a problem. And you're just like, I'm just not going to go there. Why? Because life will be difficult in the home if I don't, if I do. And so for the sake of peace right now, I'm just not going to go there and try to do that. Let me tell you this is that we are told that if we're told to encourage one another and build one another up, and that includes marriage. And I, I often say this is that in a marriage relationship for the Christian, we're brothers and sisters before we're husband and wives. And so my wife is supposed to be pushing me to follow Christ. And if she sees patterns in my life, she needs to say, Jeremy, I don't think that this is helpful. I don't think it's helpful. Can we talk about this? And I need to do the same for her. And so all these things that we just talked about, it strengthens marriage. Okay, but, but not just a marriage application here. Uh, we can talk about church applications. The same list applies. Do we have affection for one another? Do we have respect for one another? Do we enjoy being with each other? Do we have shared values or common struggles and joys? Do we have shared values? Is there mutuality? Um, is there a willingness to speak the truth in love? And so the more gospel-centered friendships that we have, the stronger our church is going to be. And so we talk about recovering relationships is that we need to recover friendships and true biblical friendships. So we need to put the time, the energy, and the effort required to be a good friend. Our earthly relationships, they flow out of the relationship with God, as we talked about, the image of God that's stamped upon us. So when we don't feel like inconvenience ourselves for a friend, we have to remember that Jesus went to the cross, right? That Jesus inconvenienced himself for us. That motivates us. When a friend lets us down, it's a reminder that Jesus never will. If we follow Jesus, we will never feel the pain uh, uh, and loss of friendship with Jesus. We may feel the pain and loss of an earthly friend, which I have experienced, and I'm sure you have as well. But in Christ, we will never experience the loss of friendship with the Son of God. So who needs friends? We all do. So if you see someone in the margins or someone who's lonely, reach out to that person, befriend them, because that's what Jesus did to you. And so the gospel is very clear that we had a need and that Jesus came to meet that need. And if we repent, if we follow him, Jesus said that, in fact, you know, it was, it was interesting in Jesus' ministry, they were trying to uh, mock Jesus and make fun of him by saying, listen, he's a friend of sinners. And Jesus embraced that. He said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. That's the gospel. 